Hey listener, we care about you and the Grace Story community, so we just wanted to give you a heads up that in this episode, there is content that is potentially uh, disturbing for some listeners. Uh, There is sexual content. We are talking about sexual abuse, Um, so just take that on as as a trigger warning here. Um, Maybe put in the headphones or find a private place or maybe press pause and listen to this at a later date. Uh, But just want to give you that heads up before we get started. Now, here we go with the show. Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode, what promises to be uh, a potentially heavy episode, but an unfortunately necessary episode as we talk today about sexual abuse, as we talk about potentially facing our perpetrators, or what does it mean if we don't get to do that? What does the healing journey look like after sexual abuse? And we couldn't think of a better uh, uh, guest to have on. But uh, our very own Ryan Waters, our resident uh, licensed counselor in the building, uh, he's on with us today. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be here, Nate. And it, it seems like a weird place to start because it almost seems like you wouldn't have to uh, identify or, or um, put out a definition for sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it is important to understand when we're, we're talking about a large community because uh, this goes all we, we have listeners in all 50 states over 50 countries um, so I want to make sure we're all on the same page as to mm-hmm. what sexual abuse is when we're talking about it um, maybe that's a good place to start just uh, if you'd give us a, a definition of what sexual abuse is yeah so sexual abuse is any unwanted sexual behavior perpetrated against uh, someone else. Sometimes uh, another term that's used that's even more all-encompassing is sexual violence. And that is not necessarily a legal term. Uh, and maybe a quick side note, each state has their own definition of uh, a wide variety of sexually abusive behavior. Like what is sexual assault? What is rape? What is incest? Uh, but sometimes the term sexual violence is used to be kind of a, a catch-all. Okay, and with that, talking about uh, the sexual violence, the sexual abuse, um, is it different? And, and this is a question I've, I've had pop up from time, time to time, but is it different in, in church groups with the prevalence, or is this something that in the general population is, is equal? Is there any data around that? Because um, I know some are like, well, this is just a, a problem the church has, and, and I'm one that really likes data. Is, mm-hmm. is that a factual uh, thing when people say that? I'm not sure that I have comparative data, like is is there more or less? I would say there is a lot of data that says it is very prevalent within the church. And not just the Catholic church, which is the one we hear about on the news the most frequently, but uh, within our own circles. Uh, and part of it is uh, sexual abuse tends to th- grow whenever there are high levels of rigidity, low levels of empathy, and also low levels of accountability. And so sometimes those dynamics are present in, in many churches and a variety of denominations. That that seems like, because you, you talk about lack of accountability, that seems like that wouldn't be the case in such a rigid 
structured system almost uh, as if, well, and let me ask it this way. How can there be a lack of accountability? What does that look like within a rigid structured system? Because again, it seems like that would be almost something uh, that would be a part of that, uh, that structure. So when I think of accountability, I think of some very obvious things like are there windows on doors into private spaces where there are uh, one-on-one meetings or uh, wherever there maybe kids are present? Uh, are there regular times of accountability where someone can ask like, hey, you know, my child came home and said that something happened here. I need clarity around, around that. And some very rigid environments, even asking a question like that is considered inappropriate. And so it's like, I don't want to rock the boat. So when I'm thinking of rigid, um, that's part of what I'm thinking of. And also, uh, also when I think of rigid, rigidity leads to a double life and also learning how to hide things very well, because you can't actually be vulnerable to be human. And so you have to um, learn how to put on a mask. And in that kind of environment, things often spiral out of control and secrecy. So this is something uh, when you're when you're talking about that accountability, it, it it leads me to a listener question. We had one of the one of the great things about our Grace Story community uh, on on Facebook is that I'm able to jump in there, put up a post, and ask for questions when we're about to do a podcast. We had lots of people. It was sobering. Uh, how many actually sent in a question or shared an experience uh, through email or direct message um, about this topic of sexual abuse. And one of those questions, I'm going to read it here to you. It's right along the same vein. Uh, What do you want to do when you, what should you do when you've been verbally sexually assaulted by a well-known leader in the church community? Um, Because you're talking about, you know, people, they're in power. Uh, You don't want to rock the boat. Um, and also these are representatives of, of God in your community. Um, so it's a very serious, uh, claim and it seems like also, uh, you're going to have to have some sort of proof. Um, the proof's all on you. Um, so Mm. maybe helping somebody with that along the same vein, what's your response to that question? Yeah. Well, scripture makes it very clear that leaders have a higher level of accountability, not a lower level of accountability. And so there are, there is no church leader um, kind of above the law to use that term. And so uh, they should be held to account for their behavior. And so what does that look like to actually do? Uh, Hopefully the church has a, uh, a system in place where that kind of a concern can be voiced. Uh, all churches should have some kind of a, a manual or policy or procedures that says, if you have a complaint, here's the chain and here's how to work it up the chain. If that isn't possible or if that isn't present, then um, it becomes a little more gray in terms of how to move forward with it. But in essence, you you do need to find someone who is trustworthy, has the ability to and act change and share your story. And I think, uh, for, for those listening, if, if you're thinking about that and you're like, well, yeah, my, my church group is so stinking small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finding someone that it, it may be, you know, the, the, uh, 
main leader is the one doing the perpetrating or whatever. If you find yourself in that, uh, you know, Grace Story Ministries, we're here to be a resource. We're not here yeah. to be a whistleblower. I will put that up there at the very front. Uh, we're here to be a resource for everyone on their journey of restoration. Uh, but if you need uh, some counseling around what that may look like for you, uh, what the start of that may look like for you, just go to GraceStoryMinistries.com, click contact. Um, that goes right to our team. Um, so with this, so I don't want to jump around too much, but I did notice as we had questions come in, I didn't say the topic of this episode was about sexual abuse in the church. It's just sexual abuse. But it seemed like so many of our questions just kept coming back to sexual abuse in the church. Um, so we're going to talk about that quite a bit. Um, but I want to make sure that we talk about the actual victims before we get to some of those listener questions talking about the church. Because there are seemingly after sexual abuse um, some feelings of shame and guilt that may pop up for the victim themselves. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you might be able to, we, we, we've defined what uh, sexual abuse is. Uh, we've defined that it can happen in, in safe, uh, seemingly safe groups like a church. We know that it can happen at home. We know that mm -hmm. it can happen in public. We see that in the news. We've uh, shown that it also happens in the church body. Uh, we're going to talk more about that, but let's focus in on the victim after that sexual abuse, whether it's in, in a marriage, a relationship from a church leader, uh, from a public figure, um, or just someone in your family. Um, yeah. Let's concentrate on them after that and, and kind of dig into that parts that why would someone, and there's got to be someone listening right now, like, yeah, I experienced those emotions and I was like, what? I didn't do anything mm -hmm. or maybe oh, yeah. I feel like I did. Like I, I have, I am so confused right now. Yeah. Um, can you take us through those emotions, why those may be felt? And if there are more that I may feel uh, going mm -hmm. through um, right after sexual abuse or even further. There are a host of emotions that come up after some kind of sexual abuse and confusion. You use that word is often one of the biggest ones. What just happened did I cause this? What did I do to contribute to it? And unfortunately, it's often the victim who walks away with the shame, not the abuser. Mm. You know, this idea of complicity is something that I've, I've heard a lot come up with folks in my office. And there's this false responsibility that comes, especially with kids. And sometimes this happens because we come into the world assuming that our caregivers or really have her best interest at heart. Uh, and so whenever that position gets abused, we assume that their fault lies with us. So a very sad example of this was there was a shooting at a kindergarten. And as they were interviewing the survivors of that, they were asking the interviewing the kids, they were asking like, Hey, why did, what did Susie, what did Johnny do that, uh, made this bad man come in and there's an assumption that this is my fault and that I am somehow uh, involved with the action. And so it's important to let uh, abuse survivors know that if their uh, trust was abused, if they were groomed into engaging in behavior that they later felt uncomfortable with, even that is not complicit. That's them being abused. 
they don't carry culpability for that. And so I think it's important for, uh, for folks to understand that piece. There's not true consent here. That's one of the ways I've seen shame creep in is that assumption of responsibility. Uh, EMDR is a really great tool to help with that because EMDR looks at what are the messages we tell ourselves about what happened and how do we move towards reality? Well, and, and I think that we, we talked uh, in past episodes about EMDR. EMDR is not something that every therapist uses. Uh, it's specialized, mm-hmm. uh, something you, you go through specialized training for. Um, if you want to know more about that, please reach out to Ryan, Ryan at greatstoryministries.com. Um, yeah. and, and that's something he can help you with a little bit more uh, on a therapist side. Because uh, we did have that question that you, you just sort of addressed from a listener as well when they were talking uh, about how to help someone and and they they phrased it like this what do you do what do you say to someone that opens up to you about sexual abuse they experienced in their past um and so you, you kind of brought that first part understanding their emotions mm-hmm. and making sure they know this is not your fault um yeah. but i can understand th- that someone that has been groomed um mm-hmm. and then they look back and they're like hey, i i i did kind of allow this to happen you can feel guilt in your own story where you're the victim. Um, mm-hmm. How do you move yeah. past that as as a victim? And maybe I'll phrase it this way. Maybe what is the focus as you understand that's what someone's going through and it's, it's, it's a natural emotion, a natural feeling for them to maybe be dealing with the confusion of this. Um, how, how do you help them? How do they move past that? And, and, and what do you focus on as a therapist in their uh, healing journey as you initially start that uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I should throw out the caveat that everyone's journey towards healing looks a little bit different. And so it, it may be uh, much more nuanced than the path I'm about to lay out. But whenever someone tells you the story of sexual abuse, uh, especially if you are just a friend listening in, you kind of have two options. You can choose to believe them or not believe them. And the research is pretty clear that the damage of not believing someone when they come forward about their sexual abuse is profound and long lasting. Mm. And so my encouragement is to err on the side of believing and then figure out what to do with it, work it up the chain, figure out how to bring healing. And if, by some chance, there is some mistruth in that story. It'll come to light, but you're not going to do the damage that you would do by not believing someone's actual story of pain and horror over what they've experienced. Well, it seems like that would somewhat go back to what we've talked about in the past about boundaries. If someone comes to you and by all appearances, it, it seems that they're telling you a story of sexual abuse, this is a very serious matter, and you trust them, um, and you do your best to help them, if it comes out that they're lying at that point where you understand that it it definitely is a mistruth, that's on them, that's not on you, unless you continue to uh, carry on the lie with them, then you are culpable. 
but right. if you're just acting in good faith, that's actually, well, for, for some of us, um, that's actually a, a lawful action you have to abide by. Yeah, um, I know true. most of the people here at Grace Story uh, practice in a professional uh, capacity as we have a couple nurses, um, uh, counselors, and, and they're required to report uh, mm-hmm. any any action uh, sexual abuse. So, um, <laughs> Although I will throw out one caveat there. Sexual abuse for basically the population that can't stand up for themselves, kids, dependent adults, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. If you're over the age of 18 and of kind of sound mind and body, that's actually the choice that you get to make. Sure. Is that, is that something that you want to do? And I've had folks go both ways on that. Some have chose to seek uh, justice for their past abuse and others for a variety of reasons and um, emotions have decided not to. I want to talk about this feeling of complicity um, mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, what what does one do with that? Like you're wrestling with, uh, you know, thinking about and reliving every moment of your sexual abuse and saying, I should have done this. And because I didn't do that, I'm part of the problem too, or I'm yeah. complicit. And I feel like that could even go to someone who was so young that, there's no way this was your fault at all. You are not at fault because you just didn't know. Um, So can you talk directly to a listener who's maybe thinking about like, yeah, I I mean, I get it. You guys are talking about this. It wasn't really sexual abuse because I was complicit as well. Did I want to do it? No. All those caveats that we give ourselves. uh, Talk about that complicity. Yeah. And that's, I've heard a lot of folks wrestle with that piece. And especially as you indicated for kids who were just very young, man, you were just a kid. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the capacity, the brain power, the awareness to really figure that out. No kid does. What you really needed was some wise nurturing figure to step into that with you and say, Hey, let me help you figure this out. This is, I don't want you to carry the weight of this anymore. It's too heavy for you. Let's let's figure out what to do with this. But when you don't have that person, for whatever reason, you just have to carry it on your own. And kids are, maybe you've heard the, the phrase, kids are resilient. I, I'm not sure that's true. I think I prefer the phrase, kids are adaptive. Yeah. In other words, they find a way to survive. And some of those ways, maybe if they were even necessary as kids, they don't serve us well later in life. And so... Uh, if some of the ways that kids found to adapt to survive may have looked like complicity, but if it's out of fear, you know, like this person's going to hurt me in some way, or there's often threats of, if you tell anyone, I will hurt your mom or your dad or your Mm. brother or your sister. That's not complicity. That's not you um, giving your kind of conscious adult consent to a behavior. That's you trying to uh, stay alive, sometimes physically, but certainly emotionally. Well, I understand that as we're talking about this stuff, it, it may seem like uh, it's not laissez-faire. We're just, you know, we're talking yeah. about sexual abuse today. Like I yeah. felt myself going into this episode. Uh, my, my shoulders are tense. Uh, I'm going through the questions and, you know, I'm able to compartmentalize very well. 
Um, but I understand my own feelings about this topic because we all seem, we all know someone it seems like who's been through this or there's individuals who this is personal for them. Um, Mm -hmm. so I want to say to the listeners, as we're at this point in in the recording, if you're feeling that tense, uh, Mm -hmm. feeling and you need to stop and take a break, please do. Um, if you want to reach out to us and talk a little bit more, check the show notes. Um, there's a link there. You can reach out. We're glad Mm -hmm. to talk to you because this is not a light topic. Mm -hmm. Um, because as, as you're talking about this, uh, complicity and the young age, I'm getting angry because I'm also Mm -hmm. thinking about what should have been a nurturing relationship. Um, and what, and I want to be careful here, but groomers and sexual abusers are so good at Mm -hmm. seeing what you need as a victim and exploiting that. Yeah. And it's not things that you need because you're at fault. It's not things that you need because you're somehow less than. It's Mm -hmm. simply, mostly needs that God has placed in you as an image bearer of God. That now Mm -hmm. a sexual abuser sees that and becomes a fake, terrible, evil version of what God is in your life and then perverts it destroys what that relationship should be uh, that you talked about nurturing and developing using some of those tools to get into your life. That's the grooming and meet that need and then get their talents into you and then get what they want for their benefit. Mm -hmm. And all that while they are, uh, especially at the young age, giving you an image of what God is from that early age that Mm -hmm. is wrong They're taking that authority figure that should be safe and nurturing and perverting it for their own benefit. So I, and and please understand the passion about this because it just makes me angry that someone would Mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. How, how does this and and correct any part of that where I, I went astray, but how does that abuse and the grooming uh, and the misuse of of some of those needs uh, and, and understanding that, how does that shape our view of God early on? Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe how can I restructure that or go back or get myself a reintroduction to God without all that baggage? Is that, even, is that a pipe dream or is that just like, I'm always going to have this off view of who God is because of this abuse? No, I think that's the work of healing. And I think that is something that uh, abuse survivors have to face at some point. The tough questions, where was God when my abuser was raping me? Where was God when uh, I tried to tell someone and no one believed me? Those are the things that really have to be sat with and faced. And usually that's not something you can do alone. You need safe people around you who can support you in that, not try and fix it, not give you all pat answers. And then, you know, don't get me started on that. Please don't give pat answers to folks. Um, truly be with them in that pain, empathize. And that's enough because it's not yours to solve. Mm-hmm. But it often does shape someone's view of God. Um, and some of those questions I just mentioned are some of the sticking points that I, that I often hear. 
And everyone's journey through that looks a little bit different. Um, but usually, uh, as healing takes place, you're able to understand God as also a righteous judge who will one day bring justice, whose heart breaks with you as you experience pain. And so the ability to sit with someone in that, um, that's sacred work. And so if someone has invited you into that space, you know, to, to be supportive, uh, please, please view it as such as a sacred honor. And if it's beyond what you're capable of handling, that's okay. That's not a, an indication of your, oh, certainly not your lack of desire. It's okay to find someone safe that is uh, trained, skilled in helping abuse survivors overcome. But you can still be a supportive ally for them on their journey, even if you're not the primary support person and that becomes a counselor. Well, it makes sense that there might be uh, some things, especially around this topic, that may be over some people's heads. Because um, people, counselors go to school for a long, long time just to be able to sit in a room with someone. And I'm assuming there's times where you may have a client that you even have to go next door to uh, your other uh, licensed mm-hmm. counselors and be like, hey, listen, I need mm-hmm. some insight. Uh, I've been praying about this, trying to work through this. What it, you know, Some things that may even be beyond your skill set at times uh, that you seek counsel for to help. So let, let's talk more about that in that are there different stages or are there different things that I might expect as I, with or without a counselor, work through a healing journey after sexual abuse? Yeah. So I go back to kind of the stages of grief and uh, that maybe that's a deep dive on that would be for another episode, but you go through anger, you go through bargaining and there's some chaos thrown in the mix there. And uh, eventually you arrive at acceptance and sometimes it's not the smooth linear circle. Like it's presented, uh, you know, and, and the, and the worksheets, it's kind of like a ping pong ball and a pinball machine, you know, or I should say a pinball and a pinball machine You bounce them back and forth. But eventually you start, uh, I like to use the term integrating your story. And so you, in essence, make sense of what happened to you and put it, and are able to put it in its proper context. That's ultimately what the, the healing work of uh, of trauma work really is, is making sense of what happened to you. Well, and if you want more on that, uh, what, what Ryan's talking about with the grief, we did do a two-part episode back, uh, episodes 24 and 25, what do I do with grief? We walk through all those stages um, mm. and, and we talk a lot about that. Uh, with that, so one of the things we talked about in those episodes is there's there's not like some pinnacle, top of the mountain, uh, here's your diploma. Um, mm-hmm. You reach the top yeah. of the ladder, um, yeah. kind of reshaping what we think about the, here's the seven steps or however many it is of, of grief. Like you don't get to the top of the stairs and mm-hmm. get to shut the door and go into your bedroom. Like, no, the, this, so that sounds terrible for grief. It sounds mm-hmm. terrifying when it comes to sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but also somehow gratifying in a way because I'm like, people are saying that I should get over this. I'm not going to, I, this is so terrible, 
does that make any sense? All those combined into one, like, yeah, yeah I'm not going to get over this, even though I want to, this yeah. was a turning point, uh, you know, in my life. Um, yeah. what, uh, with that, there's also those, those daily things that are reminding me that I'm not going to get over it's the, the, the triggers. I know some people don't like that word, but it really mm-hmm. is a good word to talk yeah. about when used properly. Uh, so what, what might some of those everyday triggers look like for a sexual abuse victim? Is it possible to get over those? So I do want to normalize, jumping back to where you started. It is very common to have this chaos inside around sexual abuse and this almost some, I've had people describe it almost like a tornado inside, especially when that trauma reaction, which is really what's happening when triggers come into play, uh, goes into full swing. The way our bodies are designed, they're designed to keep us safe. And so anytime something in the present reminds us of a very painful experience in the past, our body quite literally reconnects us with that space. And so you start feeling like you are back in the abuse. What happens with trauma survivors is their bodies say, hey, you're in danger right now. You're, in, you're a threat. Um, and it, the triggers can be, and I, and I mean this, genuinely anything. It could be a site. It could be someone with a similar color hair as a past abuser or um, the, a smell from around that period of time. The feeling of, this is one I hear quite a bit, the feeling of uh, a piece of clothing uh, touching your skin in a certain way that it was back when the abuse happened. And so normalizing like, hey, this is actually trauma, your trauma reaction is actually trying to keep you safe, uh, has a way of putting some, oh, a compassionate lens on what's happening to you rather than feeling like, what the world is my body doing right now? You know, I'm here at home and I shouldn't be feeling this way. Kind of the tyranny of the odds. Well, your body's doing what it knows to do best, which is keep you alive. So what do we do with those triggers when they come? In a big picture, you move towards safety. And that often looks like reminding yourself that you're in the here and now, not back when the abuse happened. And that can look like engaging your senses. Look around the room. What am I seeing, tasting, touching, hearing, smelling? I'm here and now. It can also look like co-regulation where you find someone safe and you say, hey, I'm feeling chaotic. Can you sit with me? Can you talk to me? Can I make eye contact with you so that your nervous system can remind my nervous system that I'm okay? Some of that sounds, and, and I, I, I always like to make this caveat because we have a wide range of listeners from uh, different uh, backgrounds when we talk about uh, church groups, because uh, what you're saying can sound a little like um, your nervous system reminding my nervous system, ah, I don't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there any example that you can think of in scripture of someone, I'm putting you on the spot here, I know, but yeah. of something like that happening where it, it's a biblical example of that, that regulation and helping the other person? A couple of things come to mind for me. Um, and this is also involves music, but I think of David soothing Saul mm, yeah. as an example of that. Um, 
but you see other examples too. Um, you see people being joyous together. Uh, that's a very similar thing. And when I, when I say your nervous system, we, in our brains, we have mirror neurons that quite literally mimic and mirror yes. what we're seeing. That's how we learn how to use a fork. That's how we learn how to do many things. And so uh, the way God wired our bodies is to be social, to be connected. And so uh, part of that is that co-regulation piece. So you probably have all experienced this at some point in time. Like you go into a room and you see someone who's just super anxious. Maybe they're fidgety. They're just super amped up. And next thing you know, you find yourself feeling tense. And nothing really changed in your world other than being in the presence of this other person. Uh, or this can happen more positively whenever you are feeling anxious and you walk in and you have a conversation with someone who's exceptionally calm. You walk out feeling calmer. And what that is, is co-regulation, your nervous system reading theirs. So we have this, this regulation, we have uh, helping another person, and, and that's, that's in a friendly environment, uh, in a safe environment, searching for safety. But we did, we did have a lot of uh, questions surrounding, and it came out of you know, some recent uh, activities around a prominent Facebook employee who was a part of Meta. Um, he was caught in a, uh, a pedophile sex uh, sting um, by a group in Indianapolis, I believe it was. And, and a lot of us knew um, John Hopkins, uh, who was able to confront his perpetrator by phone in that uh, whole mess. It was truly a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of that uh, has kind of gone through our Grace Story community as well, because it's so close to home. A lot of us know both the perpetrator yeah. and the victim. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, maybe I'll ask this. This is not, wouldn't be safety. This would be moving towards something that would be out of the control of the victim a little bit. Is it ever helpful or healing uh, to, to face your perpetrator? And how would one do that? Do you have examples of maybe how that's happened? Because it seems almost impossible. Like, what are you going to do? besides some pedophile sex sting that they're still, you know, at the age of 30 something doing this type of thing. Um, what does that yeah. look like? And can it be healing? Short answer? Yes, it can be healing. Do I think it's the only path to healing? No, because I don't think it's always appropriate to um, address your abuser. And particularly whenever it would be unsafe to do so, like there would be a threat of physical harm, um, so I, I always like to throw out that caveat because some people, I don't want them just like sitting down and jotting off that email, you know, to, to everyone uh, around the, the perpetrator. For some folks, finding the courage to confront their abuser is a significant part of their healing journey. And that's typically not done in isolation. So in other words, it's not just you and the perpetrator but it's you and someone that's very safe for you doing that together. Someone who believes your story. Uh, This is often done in court cases where you have a victim write an impact letter that gets read in court. And the the part of beyond the, the legal piece of it is an attempt to help the victim receive closure. Um, to be able to be heard and seen because that's one of the pieces that a victim walks away with frequently is they don't have a voice 
they aren't seen. And so finding a way to harness that power moves them out of that. I can't do anything about this. I just have to endure this to no, actually I have a voice and I have the ability to enact change. And I'm not the only one who knows this now because secrets can be really heavy things to carry. And let me just make a quick side note on that. Many times victims carry the secret of their abuse for years because they either don't feel like anyone would believe them or they feel kind of that complicity piece falsely. But for whatever reason, they carry that secret and it's, it's kind of like carrying a piano around on your back that no one knows about. And it permeates just about every area of your life many times. So there's a freedom that comes when you share your story in a safe place. And someone says, I believe you. I see you. Let's figure out what to do. Well, there's that loss of, you talk about that loss of control and it makes sense why people might find other ways in their life to control things because some become some control freak. I'm not saying all control freaks were sexually abused, but you know, you know mm-hmm. that the, you oh, may yeah. find ways to control things. Um, yeah. And it does make sense that, that you may not always get to face your perpetrator um, in the way that uh, some others have you know, very public ways or very uh, ways that seem like justice was served here. I have yeah. closure. Yeah. Um, well, for some, maybe the perpetrator is already passed on. Mm. And so there literally is no way of confronting them personally. And in those situations, there are still things that can be helpful. Um, there is a, sometimes it writing letters to that person. I've seen that be very therapeutic for folks doing chair work where you envision what it would be like just in your mind's eye to have that conversation. I've seen that be helpful for folks. So there are ways to, to handle those, those moments, but I do want to highlight like, yeah, it's not always going to be possible to confront your abuser. And with that, I mean, we'll, do those tools that, that you're talking about writing a letter or sitting down and doing an exercise, have you found for for those you've worked with, does that offer closure or is it just like the next best thing? Well, all right, they're, they got away with it. I mm-hmm. guess I'll try to do my best to write this letter and burn it on a candle. I get it, it mm-hmm. you know, or, or does it actually offer closure? I've seen it actually offer closure, like genuine healing where they feel differently inside and about others there's something really powerful about the way God wired our brains to be able to uh, kind of enact those conversations uh, either on a piece of paper or in our mind's eye. Uh, so a lot of folks have found it helpful over the years. You mentioned one way that people face their perpetrators and that's in court. And I wanted to highlight the episode, I believe it's episode 35 with Rachel Henry. That's something that she walked through. She had, uh, uh, she was mm-hmm. the victim of rape in her own home by uh, men who came in, ended up some, I, I believe they were teenagers um, as mm-hmm. well. And, and they raped her in her own home. Um, and a little while later, they, they were caught and taken to court. And then she had to go through, you know, that whole process. Um, so mm-hmm. if you want more on this, go back to that episode, listen in, cause you can hear a story of how she was going to, she knew she was going to forgive 
even while the act was happening. Uh, it's just she had to move through the process to forgive. She also went through some EMDR therapy to help her as well. Mm-hmm. You talk about that and people not believing your story and you talk about time because uh, I think, you know, in recent history with Me Too movements and things like that or, you know, uh, Supreme Court appointments and we won't go down the pol- mm-hmm. politics of that road. But mm-hmm. some of the questions that comes up is, well, why did they wait till now? Isn't that convenient? Uh, mm-hmm. um, and again, not going down the politics of that road, but. It brings me to um, a story that somebody sent in and they said, I hope uh, that, you know, our, our experience uh, may be able to help others um, and, and use it as you may. Um, but they, they, it addresses some of these things of having a voice, your story mattering, holding on to something for years, um, not telling anyone for one reason or another. And I just want to read it and then get your take on it, Ryan. Listeners sent this in uh, and they say, uh, and, and they use it in, in some terminology to, to you know, protect uh, those that are involved and, and maintain mm-hmm. some, some anonymity, but it goes like this. These are their exact words. An underage CHM, and that stands for Conservative Holiness Movement, uh, for those of you that aren't a part of that, but an underage CHM teenage girl is groomed via texting and phone calls by a ministerial student from a CHM Bible college. While traveling to her local area for a camp meeting, he takes her for an ATV ride and when in a remote location, he kisses her. He then proceeds to take advantage of her and begins making her have sex until she pushes him off of her in panic. He never communicates with her again. 15 years later, she is living in another state, but finds out that this abuser is to preach a trial sermon at her childhood CHM church in hopes of gaining pastorship. She writes a letter to her church, and and he, uh, when faced with this, denies all allegations when confronted by the church board. Not only does he deny allegations, but not one person from her home church reaches out to her to even apologize or show empathy for the raw account that she wrote in this letter to her church. What encouragement or words would you have for her? What other steps, Mm -hmm. if any, should be taken to bring attention to a, quote, lying sexual abuser who seeks to pastor churches in the CHM? Though the abuser denied the abuse in front of the board of the childhoods uh, of her childhood church, he was still not invited to pastor. Uh, it may have been taken into consideration, uh, the letter, the truth of it. So it sounds like maybe some belief happened. Maybe there was something else. Doesn't sound like there was a lot of validation or empathy towards the person, but this happens mm. more more than we maybe know. What what do you say mm. to that person who's experienced what you've been talking about, the believability? I came forward to help. That's when I decided to let my story be known because it seemed to matter. Things were on the line. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that person? Well, and I feel like this is a good example of how complicated and sticky situations like this can become simply because it's a small movement. And people know people, and that is the the unfortunate nature of many folk stories of finding the courage to reach out and then not fully being believed, but kind of, and like this in-between space. And that's just really, really painful when you're the victim here feeling all of this. Oh, you kind of relive it again, even in the writing of the story. And then to not really have that piece be believed 
that's really painful. So what advice would I have for them? Well, one, I would just affirm the courage that it took to, to write that letter, to let that story be known. And to speak to something you mentioned earlier, like, well, why, why wait till now? I do think that there is something um, important and appropriate about recognizing that abusers, especially when they are seeking to move into positions of power, uh, it, it, I'm, in my opinion, increases the, um, the importance level of that story being known because it's going to put them in a position where they can perpetuate the abuse. And that's, that's hard, but that may, I think, in my opinion, explain why the, for many folks, the why now uh, question comes to light. Well, let's let's actually flip this story kind of on its head a little bit, um, and let's talk because I notice in this the the perpetrator is is a teenager, and I am in no way uh, excusing away his behavior whatsoever. He is responsible for what he did, especially as a fifteen year old. He he knew what was going on. Um, however, uh, I I also recognize that things may have changed for him. Um, not everybody continues to, to, you know, go down this pathway and, and there needs to be an off ramp for certain types of people who are perpetrators. Uh, mm-hmm. but talk about messy again, how, how does, and when is it right? And, and for someone who has perpetrated, um, to go back and make things right. Is that even possible? Sometimes not always. Sometimes trying to go back and make amends does more harm than good. And that's actually the ninth step in the 12 step community. Uh, You make amends unless doing so would cause uh, continued or irreparable harm uh, to others. Now, I don't want folks to hear that as an out for an abuser. Like that's not at all what I mean here. What I mean here is, uh, I actually have experiences in my office where folks have deeply desired to go back and make amends, but doing so would have destroyed the other person emotionally. And the person said, no, like, I don't want to receive anything from you. So forcing that conversation would have done more harm than good. Now, those are conversations that I think you really need an outside party to help you navigate, even knowing how and when to make amends. So a counselor is the first person that comes to mind, maybe having a counselor to kind of help you navigate uh, how and when should I, should I make amends? Also, I'm not a lawyer, but you do have to be mindful of the legal pieces connected with this statute of limitations. Um, The fact that uh, some folks are mandated reporters, myself included. If I hear of abuse of a child or someone who can't really defend themselves, I'm obligated by law and ethics uh, to to make sure that safety is is in the picture. So that is a very sticky uh, conundrum and one which I really encourage you to seek out help with. Um, And if you don't know who to turn to, uh, there are some great organizations out there to help you. Uh, I included a link in the, the past video on this topic where I addressed very briefly uh, a segment of that video to abusers. So there are organizations to help uh, folks in your position. 
And we have that video that Ryan put together. Um, it's about 10 minutes long, so very, very easy to view. And that's over on our YouTube channel. Uh, just search Grace Story, all one word, Grace Story Ministries uh, over on YouTube. And uh, make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss out on anything as that pops up over there. So I want to go a little bit further with this perpetrator thing because uh, I want I want to see if you have any examples, if you're allowed to share, of this going right as a perpetrator kind of apologizes. What is the best one can hope for? Um, it, it, maybe they've been confronted and they don't know what to do, or I don't know. But like, how is there a salvageable relationship there? Um, what what are the because it sounds like sometimes, yeah, it, it sounds like there could be when you talk about making amends, that means you're trying to restore something. But on the other hand, I'm like, no, I, I, I feel like that would be nothing I'd want to be a part of at the same time. It sounds icky. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yes, I could pull up several examples on both sides of it where there's been abuse, but there's been healing reconciliation and there's been. Uh, out of that, a beautiful relationship that grows. Uh, I've seen it the other way where the abuse has been either so significant or the damage so profound that it, the relationship is unable to be to be repaired. And that's not an indication of like, oh, they did it the right way or the wrong way. Sometimes that's just a reflection of, of life, of pain. And that's what it's like to, li- like to live in a, a broken world. I think it'd be also the severity of of the abuse would probably factor mm-hmm. in, and yeah. I I can't help well, but rem- also think about the safety aspect of it too, mm-hmm. because keep in mind for some people that grooming that happened, uh, you don't want to go back into that type of relationship ever again. I will say this: the examples that I'm pulling up off of um, my experience have not really been with an adult and a child. This is stuff that happened in childhood that you um, almost kind of like two kids struggling to figure out how to heal uh, after things happen in, in darkness. And what do you do when it comes to light? When you have a, an abuser who is grooming someone else, a younger person, Honestly, I can't pull up a single instance in my mind where that has ever moved towards reconciliation. Am I going to say it's impossible? Well, I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not infinite, but I would say it's highly, highly, highly unlikely. Uh, partly because the severity of the damage, the abuse of trust, there's a lot of factors that go into that that may not be as present in other forms of abuse. So it sounds like at the end of the day, um, if you've, you're walking through this and wondering whether you should uh, reach out and confront a perpetrator or if you are on the opposite side of that and you know you've done wrong to someone and you want to make amends and this is something where there may be legal ramifications, there may be more hurt initiated by reaching out and, and, and making amends, you need professional help to walk mm-hmm. through that. Uh, yes. You you mentioned certain dynamics of relationship here, including uh, trust um, mm-hmm. and and intimacy, um, and it goes to some questions that that were sent in for this particular episode. Um, 
that deal with that. Uh, not all perpetrators may look the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of yes. them may be closer to home than you might think. We had um, a question sent in, and I'm going to read it verbatim, and then we can take it take it from there. Is uh, The listener's question says, uh, how do you address sexual issues that stem from previous sexual abuse in marriage? Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes on to, with a kind of another question along the same vein, recognizing marital rape, not just forceful rape, but also coercion. Can you say no to sex in marriage? How to recognize when it's coercion? If it's force, forcefully taken, what do you do? What do I do if I feel trapped in a marriage like that? Um, mm-hmm. And I got that question and I was like, wow, yeah. I, that, that's a lot. And I'm, I'm thankful it for is. Ryan <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I can't imagine being in, in that. And, and it goes to what you're talking about, the trust dynamics. And this is a whole nother level of relationship because uh, we've talked about being uh, making amends and something like that. Um, I don't know. I'll just, I'll throw that over to you. The whole question there wrapped up with a bow. That's a tough topic, but it's an extremely important one. So maybe I'll address it from a couple different perspectives. This whole idea of marital rape for many folks, they don't even know that exists. That's a thing. That's a designation that can be labeled on their, their experience, but it is. Uh, from a from a legal perspective, it is marital rape is a legal term and is an illegal offense in all fifty states. I have heard folks from a more uh, theologic perspective argue that that's not a thing, and that's just not what I see when I look at Scripture. When I see Paul talking about uh, the wife, your body is not your own, but your husband's husband, the body is not your own, but your wife's. We're talking about mutuality there. We're not talking about power over. Mm. And even a step further, when you hear uh, or when you read uh, husband love your wives as Christ loves the church, like, can you really imagine Jesus walking up to the church and saying, hey, strip and give me some? No, no. He, he stands at the door and, and he knocks. I've heard all exactly. my life. He's a gentleman. Yeah. So I don't think a case can be made, certainly not legally, but uh, neither biblically for marital rape and that a wife cannot say no or a husband cannot say no to sexuality. So let me take it from a more psychological perspective. Whenever I hear about issues of sexuality in a relationship, I tend to think of sex as a microcosm of how the relationship is doing overall. And so sometimes there are issues that show up on a physical sexual level because there are also issues on an emotional uh, intimacy level. And so there may be other pieces of the relationship that really need to be looked at. I'm not saying that's always the case. Uh, And one of the examples of when that isn't always the case is whenever one person in the, in the marriage has suffered past sexual abuse. And so every time they go into this very now safe relationship with someone they care about deeply, their body's going to remind them of the last time that they had a sexual experience where they were abused. And it's going to feel like that's happening again. And that's where you often need uh, an outside person to help you walk through that. EMDR is going to be a great tool. Uh, Also having a very empathetic, supportive spouse who says, I get it. I know that this isn't about me. I know that this is about what happened to you. 
And I want to be an advocate and ally for you on this healing journey. And that looks like me being respectful when you're having a trigger, hitting pause, even if we're well into the experience, because I know that doing so would cause additional harm. And out of my love for you, I don't want that. I care too much about you. This sounds a lot like the topic and uh, men's conference 2023 is, is coming up uh, in, in May. Um, and one of the speakers is going to be talking about understanding your story. Uh, I believe, I believe mm-hmm. that's Kathy Sprinkle is going to be talking about that. Um, is, is this kind of what you're talking about when, when we talk about understanding your story and how it affects your behaviors or your maybe needing to press pause? Yeah, it definitely could be. Um, so what happens with trauma, your nervous system in that event gets pushed beyond what it can, what it can make sense of what it can handle. And so everything gets kind of stuck in the on position inside your body. And so anytime that you experience something that reminds you of that, it's going to put you back into that space to try and keep you safe. When you help your body make sense of that trauma and it becomes an integrated part of your story, gets integrated into the left and right hemispheres of your brain, even the reactions tend to subside. I'm not saying you never have a, uh, a glimmer of it or, you know, you never have hard moments, but it becomes manageable. You can actually live life again and enjoy sexuality again. Well, let me, let me ask you that because we had another, uh, there were several questions actually on this same vein, uh, this same topic. And, and this leads me to a question someone asked, um, how does, and it goes to the healing process. So how does one reset their brain and learn what healthy sex lives look like? Um, and what exactly, they also added this on, if you can help us understand the difference between a sex therapist and a regular therapist, maybe some examples of how they work and guide you through. Because, um, you know, the, we have all sorts of, there's people identifying on different levels of, well, I wasn't trauma, but maybe I can use some help in a bedroom. I don't know, but, mm-hmm. um, or there's like, this is, yeah, this is spot on. That's, I had no clue that's what was going on, but I just shut down or mm-hmm. whatever it may be. Um, so is there, is there hope? Um, and uh, what is the difference maybe between those two types of therapy? I do think there's hope. And it often forces us to sit in discomfort, to sit in the pain of that as we uh, look back over things that we uh, wish hadn't happened to us. But at the end of the day, I do think that healing in the brain, neuroplasticity, where you literally carve new neural networks in your brain, uh, is a part of the healing process. So the difference between a therapist and a sex therapist uh, varies from state to state, but most have uh, a master's degree in some kind of mental health field, either you're a licensed social worker or a licensed professional counselor. And then after that, you go on for additional training to get certified as a sex therapist. So a sex therapist is one who, uh, in this training, kind of does a deep dive on understanding the physiology of sexuality, how that's connected to emotions, uh, trauma as well. Uh, they, They can be a really important part in many people's healing journey. So the one caveat I'll throw out there is just like not every counselor, uh, has a worldview that is 
kind of harmonious out of that that biblical worldview. As the numbers decrease and uh, as you move into more nuanced specialities like sex therapy, the number of folks available with a conducive worldview tend to go down further and further. Now, for some, they're able to set that aside and help you right where you're at. But some, for others, that's that's harder. That's why every time I make a referral, I strongly encourage folks to have a conversation before the first session, just to try and get a feel for how you're going to be a fit. And also ask questions like, how will my faith be respected in this? Uh, so that's the one caveat I'll throw out. Well, and what you're referring to there, referring to, is the referral line. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, essentially, just a, a customized shopper for. Um, a, there, I heard the other day someone say, "There's just no limits to the access people have to mental health care." Um, and I personally know in the healthcare environment, people are on like months wait for yeah. mental health yeah. help right now and i'm like what are you talking about and even if you like google search you don't know what's real and what's not because i'll be honest ryan counselors aren't very good at their websites it's just it's just not their <laughs> thing true <laughs> uh, so if you want help with that just go to gracetoryministries.com click on the counselor referral it's anonymous it goes right to ryan um, and he helps us, uh, he's helped so many people across the entire country find uh, help, mental health help uh, in their area. Uh, Ryan, I want to take us back because some, some of the things in those questions uh, from our listeners, and I love every time someone sends a question and so on, I want to ma- make sure we get to each part of it. Some of them mm-hmm. kind of sifted through. Um, in one question, there was the, the direct question of, uh, can you say no to sex and marriage. And I know there's going to be some caveats there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's something that could be its entire episode, <laughs> like yes, it all by itself with like a panel of speakers. Yeah. Um, and, and then with that, what do I do if I feel trapped in this marriage? Mm-hmm. Short answer, yes. You can say no to sex and, and marriage. The only caveat I'll throw out here, the first one that comes off hand anyway, is I always get get concerned whenever sex becomes a bargaining tool Mm. in a relationship. That's more of the power dynamic you you talk about. Yes, exactly. So in that case, I get concerned whenever no becomes a way of getting what you want. I'm not going to give you sex unless you do X, Y, or Z. But that's a little bit different than the context we're talking in here, which is more abusive. And in that situation, it's pretty much an unqualified, you have the right to say no. Because uh, many times, uh, whenever sex and violence, which is really what this is, get mixed, it's not about the sex, it's about the power. I want to have power over this person. I want to feel powerful. And that kind of behavior tends to escalate and expand beyond just that one domain into other domains. Uh, it expands to other forms of physical violence, to emotional abuse, uh, mental abuse. Uh, so I always get concerned and my my uh, protector mode kind of comes online whenever um, I start hearing phrases like, you can't say no to sex and marriage because it, I want to know where that ends. Well, and with that, if it's the same person asking the question of, can I say no? Um, it sounds like when they say, what if someone feels trapped, if they're mm-hmm. unable to say no, maybe, 
What does that mm-hmm. look like? You feel trapped. You can't say no. Your your gut instinct is something's not right here, and I I, I don't want a part of it. Um, so we're not mm-hmm. talking about a loving, nurturing relationship. Um, yeah. What if you feel trapped in that you can't say no? Well, I'm glad you teased that out because that's what I was kind of sensing too, is this doesn't sound like it's a very warm, nurturing relationship. And that makes me think um, that it may be time to seek out a higher level of care that the relationship really needs. So that may look like seeking out a, a therapist to kind of help you navigate that either individually or as a couple. But bottom line, you need to have a voice in the relationship. And if you don't have a voice, then that's where I've often heard people use terms like trapped. Find your voice. And I will say, uh, speaking from uh, the aspect of an emergency department nurse, having seen this Mm -hmm. over and over, the first time something happens or the first time you have to go to an emergency department for, and I'm talking some, I went to an extreme here, I know, but it may not be safe for you to leave all the time uh, at a certain time. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you can go back to in the first 10 episodes of Grace Story podcast, there's there's one on domestic violence. Go back and listen Mm -hmm. to that episode. Um, If you are in danger, if you uh, are fearing for your safety, for you or your children, please make plans. I understand you cannot leave at the drop of a hat. That may be even more dangerous for you. Um, but certainly like Ryan's saying, seek help because safety is very important. Your life is important. You mm-hmm. are important. Um, and anyone laying hands on you in a way that is, uh, less than caring, nurturing, uh, is, is not a God filled moment and is not ordained by God, um, in mm-hmm. any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, um, mm-hmm. I do want to, there, there was another part of another question that I want to go back and address as well. Mm-hmm. And and I like the way that she she's talking about. Let's turn turn the corner here to what a healthy sex life looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in that you know kind of how do you reset the brain? I, I'm interested in the way she she said that. We talked about that it's possible to kind of reset the brain and learn what a healthy sex life looks like. But I want to, if you can, dig into how does one reset their brain and learn mm-hmm. what a healthy sex life looks like. Well, a couple of things. One is if there's been abuse, you help your body learn that this situation is different than the abuse. And that takes time and often the help of a professional to help you figure out how to help your body know that it's safe in the here and now with the person that you've committed to and is genuinely safe. And so the EMDR piece where you, or the you slowly uh, move into physical intimacy. When I say slowly, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as starting off with holding hands and learning how to teach your body that, oh, I can hold hands with this person and that actually feels okay. Almost like some type of exposure therapy in a way. Exactly. Yeah. So slowly, systematically, you teach your body that it's okay. Um, And again, the assumption here is that it genuinely is okay. Like this is a safe, committed relationship. And then over time, your brain really does learn that it's safe. Because if you just try and force your brain to, hey, this is okay, just feel safe, just do it. And you try and beat your brain into submission, it's not going to work. That protector is there for a reason. Um, so being gentle with yourself is, is really critical here. 
Because especially when there's been abuse, that person wasn't. That person was abusive. They were violent with you. And so making sure that you uh, are doing the opposite of what that was with yourself and that the person you are being sexual with is doing that very same gentle approach is pivotal and learning to teach your body that it's safe in the here and now. It, it's got to be reassuring to know that it is possible. Um, but yeah. also I think it's kind of nice to know that or, or be given permission maybe to take it slow. Uh, yes, absolutely. Again, it, it seems like the faster you go, the less control you have. And that's part mm-hmm. of the trauma <laughs> in the yeah. first place is that loss of control. Uh, well, and just as a, a rule of thumb, it will probably take longer than you think it will or think it to use the word should. And that's not really the point. The point is, does my body feel safe or doesn't it? And if your body doesn't feel safe, it doesn't feel safe. Well, and, and the point is to have a, a healthy self-image, a healthy lifestyle, healthy relationships mm-hmm. with proper boundaries, all those good mm-hmm. things that you can have. And, and it's not to say like you're going to be at the starting line forever. That's not how slow, but like everything's no. going to be incremental. Uh, yeah. And one other piece I'll throw out in that it's important that you feel you have the ability to exert influence or control in that. In other words, if I say, I don't like that, will the person respond? If I say I need to hit pause, will that be honored? Cause if that isn't there, it's in, in essence, just perpetuating the abuse. Well, and speaking of things we can't control, there's two there's two listener questions that I want to get to because we are, well, we're way over time, Ryan. <laughs> so I feel like uh, here at Grace Story, at the Grace Story podcast, we tend to tight, like take a topic and just like mm-hmm. just bite off way more than we can choose. Sometimes, like let's just talk about sexual abuse. That's all. Um, and then an hour and a half later, we're like what? Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it goes back to the church again, and I can, uh, there's two parts to their question. The first one says, <clears throat> how can the church treat abusers with love and grace, but also mm-hmm. set boundaries and safeguards to prevent them from acting out again? Yeah. Um, and then the second part, and I'll remind you of this, uh, what can the church do better to help with the obvious problem? They kind of go together when, when they're talking about boundaries and safeguards preventing the, the abuser. Um, so let's start with that first one, talking about treating abusers with love and grace while also having boundaries and safeguards. And then we'll talk about what those boundaries and safeguards may be in the church. Mm-hmm. Well, I I do affirm that uh, abusers are image bearers of God. They are worthy of respect and love. And also part of accountability is living mindful that there's been a betrayal there. And I, I heard it once that always resonated with me. Trust is lost in buckets and earned with droplets. Mm. Sometimes that's the abuser's journey a lot of trust was lost and learned to be okay with that trust being earned very slowly and very methodically. You have to learn to be okay with that pace. And that will be hard because at times you get frustrated, like, but I'm doing everything right. And bearing the weight of being misunderstood is a heavy burden to carry. But that's part of what it means to walk in your own integrity now and to live a life that God has planned for you. So what does it look like for a church to come alongside someone who has a history of abusing? Um, One is, I think it has to be out in the light. 
there have to be safe people. And I use that term very intentionally because um, not everyone in the whole church needs to know the story. But there need to be enough people who know who are safe to make sure that there is appropriate accountability to make sure that abuse doesn't continue. And if a, an abuser is reticent to allow that, then that is something I, I want to know why. What's the hesitancy there? Is this a subtle way of trying to maintain access? Well, then we have a separate issue there. We have someone who really isn't wanting to get help. Uh, which is another piece. There has to be a genuine openness and a radical commitment to the truth at all cost. And if that isn't there, it's a non-starter. There has to be a radical commitment to honesty. My personal opinion is that um, if there's been a history of abuse, especially with minors, uh, that person is not going to be in a position to have access to minors again. Um, and you may say, well, it was, it was only this one time kind of way back when, no, no, the, the risk, uh, of putting kids in harm's way is just too great. And there's much more, there's many more places to serve many more places to serve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, here at Grace Story, we are, um, uh, part of our, our long-term goal is to create a program to, for safe churches. And like, how do we, how do we handle situations like this? So that program is not completed yet, but it's one of our hopes to complete it. And in there, I would love to see a section on this topic in particular. How do we, how do we handle it whenever the abuser comes to church? And, and one of the things we'd love to have with that is uh, if you're, you know, looking for a church, uh, being able to go on Grace Story Ministries website or, or whatever it may look like and see that church's name as one that Grace Story Ministries recommends as, yes, this is a safe place uh, for you to worship and grow and heal and move forward on your journey of restoration, uh, you know, taking that seal of approval. Uh, uh, but yeah, not quite there yet. But some of those mm-hmm. boundaries and safeguards that that we would be looking for in a church, um, yeah. what what would that look like, Ryan, for you to prevent abusers, as this person says, from acting out again, and also mm-hmm. helping the church do better with the obvious problem? Yeah, I think that any staff person and any volunteer needs to have a background check run, and those are very easy for churches to do. Uh, also think that anytime there are kids involved, so anyone under the age of 18, you have at least two adults, trusted adults in the room at all times. Uh, you have windows and doors where um, it's clearly visible what's going on inside that room. There needs to be a clear uh, procedure for what to handle if a, if a complaint comes in. In other words, here's who you go to. If that person is involved, here's the other person that you go to. Uh, and that's that's just good practice, best practice. Um, and also, uh, if, and this can often happen, if there are going to be situations where the abuser and the victim are both part of the congregation, you need to be very clear about how you're going to handle that. Because you, then you're kind of in a, 
and it's admittedly a very difficult situation. You technically want to serve to the needs of both, but both of them being in the same place really becomes uh, intolerable. And so there may have to be some tough decisions made about how you control when those two parties are going to be in proximity to each other. Well, and on that note, I think it's important as as leaders and boards and, you know, uh, those that are making these decisions, if there is something that comes to that point where it's going to be uncomfortable, understand that you're not the one that did the perpetrating. This is somebody that made their Mm -hmm. choices and your primary responsibility is safety for those within mm-hmm. your your community of faith. Um, yeah, it, it gets messy. I know we've we've here at Grace Story heard so many stories and instances, but it goes back to understanding the boundaries and responsibilities. And people make choices, and sadly, mm-hmm. we cannot uh, just give them an umbrella of grace to continue yeah. perpetrating. Um, that's not protecting them. That's not protecting those that we're, 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 we have to protect as well. You know, one other thing I'll add in here, I've seen a tremendous amount of damage come whenever uh, abusers get protected by the church. Either their story is uh, believed over the victim or it's something along the lines of, you know, well, it was just a one-time thing or, if it's a boy, boys will be boys. Or we, we can't lose them. They're the only piano player in the, in the church. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's just, we're missing the point. Yeah. Like the point is we are called to live lives that are radically honest. And these things have to come into the light. And secrecy is a perpetrator's best friend. And one thing that will allow that uh, continued behavior is if there's no accountability there's really no effects of it. Do you think there, if there's no change of heart, is it really going to change? No, no, it's just going to either get more nuanced or more, um, get better at hiding it, but it's not really going to change. Well, one of my favorite phrases that I've heard in, in leadership is uh, lack of accountability breeds entitlement. If you're not mm-hmm. held accountable, then, then you're going to become like, Hey, I'm entitled to do whatever I want here. I, the power dynamic shifts, and then this yeah. just turns into a metaphorical devil's playground of yeah. I can do whatever I want here because I'm the only one that can play the piano. Well, let's sing acapella for a while and that may, that yeah. may uh, be a more worshipful uh, environment. Yeah. So as people are struggling with this, I, I we, we have people who may be listening from the marriage standpoint, people that are, uh, you know, struggling with the abuse in, in their married life, people that are perpetrators may be listening, people that are uh, wanting to face their abuser but don't know how. They're wanting closure. All these things we've talked about, uh, childhood, clear to, to adulthood. Um, as we get to the end here, are there resources on any of those or one of those that you want to, uh, and you may not be, be able to remember them all now. We'll put uh, mm-hmm. any you do remember in the show notes. But are there a yeah. few that you'd like to highlight for people? Yeah, a few that I'll throw out there. The RAIN Network, R-A-I-N-N, is a national organization that does fantastic work with sexual violence victims. And there is a 24-hour hotline. There's a 24-hour chat option on their website uh, where you can you can get help. The One in Six Network, one in, one in six.org, 
uh, is especially for male survivors because one in six male survivors, um, uh, one in six boys have been abused sexually, one in four women, and one in 10 within marriage. So it's about 14% of the population within marriages. Wow. Dan Allender has a book called The Wounded Heart, and that's been helpful for a lot of folks over the years. So that could be a good place to start. And it's something you can find easily uh, on Amazon. But really, the one of the, the best recommendations I can make is find a counselor in your area who's equipped to help you walk through this. Because as you can tell from our conversation today, this is a topic that easily becomes very just sprawling because there's just so much and so many nuances and emotions and relationships. And you really need someone who can look at your story in particular and say, hey, here's the best path to walk. Let's do it together. Yeah. The, the two of us trying to talk and not get off on rabbit trails and also bringing in caveats and trying to, and, and yeah. it, seeing the questions come in, it didn't just stay in one theme of mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Uh, it can go anywhere the depravity of a sick mind can go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, if you need help with that, please gracestoryministries.com click on the referral link and we'll be happy to help you with that. It doesn't take very long at all, uh, to get your information to Ryan and he can help you with that. Uh, Ryan, we're here at the end. Um, and, and I always like to give it over to, to the guest and you're no stranger to this, but everything we've talked about, it's a lot. It's a lot yeah, hanging heavy is. on some people. Uh, we've been talking for over an hour now. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if there's something you want to leave our, our listeners with, a word of encouragement, uh, something from what we've talked about, whatever it may be from Ryan, what would that be to our listeners? Know that you are not alone in this. Even just the statistics I rattled off there a second ago, I hope give you a sense of, wow, I'm not the only one who has to face this. But know that we at Grace Story are here with you in it, and we want to be as deeply as you want us to be in it. So we are available. Please reach out, and we're in your corner. And there's all sorts of ways to contact us. You can reach Ryan, Ryan at GraceStoryMinistries.com, me, Nate at GraceStoryMinistries.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, if you're not a part of that community group, on Facebook and you're listening to these episodes and you want to interact and be a part of these episodes, uh, go ahead and, and follow the Grace Story podcast page on, on Instagram, but, or excuse me, Facebook, but then join that Grace Story community group because it's closed um, and it allows us to kind of ask these questions or give you an opportunity to email them in. So many people emailed in for this one, direct messaged. Um, I hope I got to all of your questions. If I didn't, Send me another email and I'll, I'll get uh, a way to work it in or get uh, a way to answer it directly for you. Um, mm-hmm. I'm grateful every time someone interacts because this is a resource for you from Grace Story Ministries. Uh, Ryan, thank you for coming on the show and taking, taking your time today to, to help in the community. It's great to be here, Nate. And thank you, listener, for joining in a lot. We got to a lot in this episode, um, heavy stuff. If you had to pause it a few times, we understand. But thank you for listening in on this episode. Uh, We like to talk about the hard things here, and we did just that today. We'll be back in two weeks with more conversation, more resources, more for you to put in your tool bag on the journey of restoration. 
I like to say there is no us without you. Uh, no us without you at conference. No us without you at the podcast. Um, so head on over to GraceStoryMinistries.com. Get to conference. Reach out to us here if you need us. Otherwise, we'll see you in two weeks and we'll be praying for you.